If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Could you do a good heartbeat with this? <laughs> no, that's going to be actually useful to me in a minute. Thanks for coming. Can you hear me okay if I stand at this level? That's okay. Okay, good. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. Anna, do we know yet who won the Orange Prize? Okay, Anna's going to tell us uh, who won the Orange Prize, which is at the moment in mid-speech, uh, apparently. So. Then please, you get tickets here. <laughs> you know, what can I say? What can I say? Just, well... <laughs> what I'll say is I'll tell you who wins when Anna tells me but um, I'm going to read you a bit of this book for about 20 minutes um, and I'll read it from the first chapter which is entitled There each of the chapters is uh, uh, based around one of these words there but for the the um, premise of the book is that uh, a man goes to a dinner party uh, at the house of some people he doesn't know at all and halfway through the dinner party he goes upstairs and locks himself into the spare bedroom and will not come out. And the rest of the book, uh, the whole of the book, actually, is told, told from the point of view of people who only tangentially know this chap. So I'm going to read you a tiny little bit from the beginning and then the moment at which one of these characters tangentially meets Miles, who's locked himself in the room. OK. There was once a man who one night between the main course and the suite at a dinner party went upstairs and locked himself in one of the bedrooms of the house of the people who were giving the dinner party. There was once a woman who had met this man 30 years before, had known him slightly for roughly two weeks in the middle of a summer when they were both 17 and hadn't seen him since, though they'd occasionally for a few years after exchanged Christmas cards, that kind of thing. Right now, the woman whose name was Anna was standing outside the locked bedroom door behind which the man whose name was Miles theoretically was. She had her arm raised and her hand ready to to what? Tap, knock discreetly. This beautiful, perfectly done out, perfectly dulled house would not stand for noise. Every creak was an affront to it and the woman who owned it emanating disapproval was just two feet behind her. But it was her fist she was standing there holding up like a 1980s cliche of a revolutionary ready to, well, nothing quiet, batter, beat, pound, rain blows. Strange phrase to rain blows, somewhere over the rainbow. She didn't remember much about him, but they'd never have been friends in the first place if he wasn't the sort to enjoy a bad pun. Was he, unlike Anna right now, the kind of person who'd know what to say to a shut door if you were standing outside one trying to get someone on the other side to open it? The kind who could turn to that child, stretched on her front as far up the staircase as her whole small self would go, the toes of her bare feet on the wood of the downstairs hall floor and her chin in her hands on the fifth step lying there watching and straight off be making the right kind of joke what you call two mushrooms on holiday fun guys straight off thank you straight off be holding forth about things like where a phrase like two rain blows came from in the first place the woman standing behind Anna sighed she somehow made a sigh sound cavernous after it the silence was even louder Anna cleared her throat <clears throat> Miles she said to the wood of the door are you there 
but the bleat of her voice left her somehow less there herself. Ah, now, see, that's what it took, the good inappropriateness of that child. Half boy, all girl, she'd elbowed herself up off the staircase, run up the stairs and was about to hammer on the door. Anna felt each thud go through her as if the child were hammering her on the chest. Come out, come out, wherever you are, the child yelled. Nothing happened. Open, sesame, the child yelled. She ducked under Anna's arm to knock. She looked up at her from under her arm. It makes the rock in the side of the mountain open, the child said. They say it in the story, therefore the rock just like opens. The child put her mouth to the door and spoke again, this time without shouting. Knock, knock, she said. Who's there? Later on in the book, then, we finally, Anna finally remembers the moment, because she doesn't remember Miles at all. She's going, who's Miles? Miles, I, I, know, we, I know we went to Europe for two weeks on a, a kind of a thing. I don't really remember him. And later on in the book, it just suddenly opens in her memory the moment of meeting Miles. So cast yourselves back 30 years with me. I'm much thinner. <laughs> That's true. Europe. Land of interrail, place known as Abroad, visited by Cliff Richard and some boys and girls 20 years ago on their double-decker bus, though right now, at the very start of the 1980s, Cliff Richard is singing about a girl who's missing, has maybe been murdered, used to room on the second floor, left no forwarding address, left nothing but a name on a payphone wall. Europe place of the grand tour for 50 British teenagers from up and down the country, of which Anna is the one from furthest north and the only Scottish one, who've each won a place in a publicity event organised by a British bank by writing a short story or an essay of not more than 2,000 words about Britain in the year 2000, which is 20 years from now. 1980, year that Anna Hardy, a prize-winning writer about what life will be like in 20 years' time, unbends the leg of a paperclip and threads it through one of her ears in Versailles, France, infecting the ear, giving herself a slight fever and having to start a course of antibiotics three days later and a couple of countries later in Brunnen, Switzerland, where the views of the mountains and the lakes and of the mountains in the lakes are stunning. But first, London, Paris, Versailles. The 50 prize-winning writers about the future are on their fourth day. On day two, everyone woke up to find that he or she was now one of the party people or the weirdo swats or the total outsiders. Already, Anna has been goosed for the first time in her life by a 17-year-old weirdo swat who in 20 years' time will have become an internationally renowned professor of theoretical physics. At the time of it happening, she has no idea that this is what's happening. The inexplicable pain between her buttock and her thigh and the red-haired, blushing boy man with bad eczema behind her seem in no way related, though later in the fortnight she will see him stand close to the back of one of the other girls and see the other girl leap in the air away from him, and then she will understand. Already the nastier of the party people have got another of the weirdo swats drunk by spiking his drink at supper in the Paris Hotel, have held him down drunk in one of the bedrooms, and have shaved off one half of his little RAF war hero moustache. He is wandering lopsidedly about in the summer haze at Versailles Palace today, a single-winged recording angel. Why would he not just shave the whole thing off, she wonders? Is it so that the people who did it to him will be made to face their meanness every time they see him? Or because he doesn't want to lose the half he's got so he can reconstruct the other exactly? Anna doesn't know. She hasn't spoken to him. She has hardly spoken to anyone. She knows his name is Peter... 
and that he had announced to everybody at the medieval banquet on day one in London that he was especially looking forward to Versailles, to seeing the historic mirror room where the peace treaty was signed at the end of the First World War. Ironic, the thought of him seeing his own war wound in every one of those huge tarnished mirrors. Anna is one of the total outsiders. This is because she is the only Scot on the tour and all 49 of the others are loud-mouthed, scary, confident, articulate English people. So, no Scots in tonight then. <laughs> it might also be because she had food poisoning after the medieval banquet and spent a lot of the first evening of initial group formation by herself in the hotel room in their hotel in Bayswater throwing up. Right now she's sitting tearing little bits off the French stick that came with a packed lunch and putting them into her mouth. She's at the side of a huge lake with an elaborate fountain in the middle of it. Are its gold horses struggling like that? Their hooves and mouths and manes all panic because they're scared they'll sink to oblivion or because coming back to the surface after being down in the deep is so terrifying. There are 11 days, including today, left. Today is only partially over. Roughly one-third of today is over. What if the bus, the 50 future writers are all crossing Europe in, crashes on this tour, and they all die, and she never gets home again? If she had her passport, she could go home. She could just go back to the hotel in Paris, pick up her bag, and go. She could leave a note at reception saying somebody at home is ill or that she's had a bad dream about the family and because her dreams are so strong and intuitive, she's decided she better return home immediately even though nobody has phoned for her or anything. No, that's pathetic. And regardless of pathos and regardless of dreams, all the passports are in the safekeeping of Barbara, the bank's accountant, one of the five accompanying staff members, ten future writers per staff member, presumably. Anna tries to imagine her passport rubber-banded to a wedge of the other 49 passports, probably alphabetically, somewhere safe, maybe in a safe, the hotel safe. Or does Barbara, the accountant, carry them everywhere with her in that briefcase? Anna, in her passport photo, taken in the photo booth at the post office at home at the beginning of June, and never did a photo booth seem so blessed, so lucky, even its little curtain enviable just in being back there in that place called home. In her passport photo, is wearing a Susie and the Banshees t-shirt. She is dark-eyed. She looks stern, disaffected, miserable, and you better not dare ask why. And this is the self that has to last her in the world until she's the ancient age of 27, when she will be a totally different person, where when everything will be different, life will be easy, will make sense, will all have fallen into place. She's wearing the same T-shirt today. She can see herself in the masky face of Susie undulating in the posh French water. She had not known she was this shy. She had not expected out in the world to find herself quite so much the wrong sort of person. She and the roommate she's been allocated, whose name is Dawn and who is pleasant enough to Anna but is definitely one of the party people, have nothing to say to each other. She hasn't said more than 11 words to anyone for 24 hours, and they weren't even all full words. Good night. Good morning. Hi. Is this free? Yeah, thanks. Bye. Look at the blue of the sky above her. Look at the dark of the sky on the surface of that lake. Look at the gold of those fixed, lashing horses. This is paradise. This is success. It said so in the papers, which reported that she was the most northerly winner of a place on this tour. So she will be good. She will write it on a postcard and send it home to her parents, who are so proud of her. It is amazing here. I am so lucky. We eat in hotels every night. I saw the Eiffel Tower and a really beautiful church. Today is Versailles. It is like paradise. Also, you can hire a 
her boat and go rowing. Ho ho, bye for now. Lavanna XOX. She will write what she really wants to say on the postcards she sends to her best friend from school, Douglas. And she will send one from every place the tour visits. No, they will be wittier than that. They will all be song lyrics pretending to be conversational. If she puts her mind to it, she'll be able to think of a lyric line which will translate as, I am the only fucking Scot, the only fucking person from anything like home on this tour, and everybody else is English and they just don't get it. Dear Douglas, could this be the plastic age? Just buying some reflections of my own sweet self. Meltdown expected, Anna, XOX. P.S. They don't want your name, just your number. No, no, she'll be even wittier. She'll choose specifically Eurovision hits. Ding-a-dong every hour when you pick a flower. She'll find a picture of the bell tower of that big church and send it on that. Douglas will think that's really funny. Ding-a-dong, listen to it. Maybe it's a bigot even when your lover is gone, gone, gone. Sing ding-dang-dong. Along from her at the lakeside, there's a gangly boy. He's one of the tour group. Yeah, he's definitely from the group. He's got the blue folder next to him on the grass. She's seen him. She remembers now. He's one of the popular ones. Is he one of the nasty popular ones are one of the less nasty and has she been humming that tune out loud the Eurovision one she was just thinking about she must have been because that boy has started to whistle it and he can't have been thinking of that completely random song which is years old and a private joke between her and Douglas at the exact same moment as she thought of it he starts whistling something else it's the ABBA song about I have a dream he doesn't look the ABBA type he sings the lines about how if you see the wonder of a fairy tale, you'll be fine in the future. He has quite a good voice. He's singing quite loud, loud enough for her to almost be able to hear him clearly. In fact, it's as if he's singing for her. Then, next, does he really sing this? I believe in Engels? That's unbelievably witty. If that's what he just sung and she hasn't misheard, that's the kind of thing only a really good friend of hers would have known to do to get her attention. Then the boy speaks, and it is to her. Come on, he says. He seems to want her to sing. She gives him her, his, her most withering look. You're joking, she says. Ah, I only joke about really serious things, he says. Come on, something good in everything you see. Don't know it, she says. You do, he says. I don't actually, she says. You do actually, he says, because ABBA songs, as anyone knows, knows, are constructed technically and harmonically so as to physically imprint the human brain, as if biting it with acid, <laughs> to ensure we will never, ever, ever be able to forget them. In 20 years' time, ABBA songs will still be being sung probably even more than they're being sung now. Is that what you wrote your Britain in the year 2000 thing about then, she said, the generation maimed in the brain by ABBA? <laughs> Maybe, he says. No way, she says. What was yours then, he says. I asked first, she says. Here's how mine started, he says. There was once a girl in a dated-looking punk T-shirt. It is not dated-looking, Anna says. Sitting by the side of the water at a French historical palace. Very funny, Anna says. She was very funny, he says. Or was she? Nobody knew. Nobody ever found out because she was so determined to keep herself to herself. If only she'd joined in with the ABBA song Miles was singing by the water at Versailles that day, then everything would have been as if by magic all right. Unfortunately, something stubborn which had taken hold in her constitution at a very early age. I'm not stubborn, she says. Unfortunately, something supercilious which had taken hold in her constitution, he says. I'm not that either, she says, whatever it is. There's just no way I'm going to be caught dead singing ABBA. I'd never sing ABBA, he says. I'm not singing ABBA, I'm singing Revolution. Unfortunately, something conservative, small C and big C, had taken hold in, I am no way either of those, she says, and your story's completely pathetic. I'm actually not joining in because I actually don't know the words of it. 
making them actually up myself, actually, he says. Anyway, actually, it's you who started with the actual Eurovision pop, not actually me. There was once a girl 20 years in the future who was totally unable to communicate except by rolling her eyes and saying only the word actually there. Now, you tell me the first line of your story. You tell me the real first line of yours first, she says. He's moved to sit closer to her. What's your name, he says. Anna, she says. Your name is almost Abba, he says. This makes her nearly laugh out loud. There was once, and there was only once, he says. Once was all there was. That's your beginning, she says. Really? He looks away. That's quite good, she says. Thanks, he says. Except you say there was once, and then there was only once, and then with that next line you say it again, so you end up saying the word once three times, which means once doesn't end up meaning once at all, she says. There was once a girl who was too critical for words, he says, or maybe just critical enough for words. What's your beginning then, critic? The future's a foreign country, they do things differently there, she says. Yeah, I know, but what's your beginning, he says. Then either he winks at her, or he's got something in his eye. It's like from the L.P. Hartley book, she says, like a new version. You know, the past is a foreign country, from the book, the go-between. Aha, he says, though, I think the original line written by L.P. Hartley is asinantily better than yours. You can go and assinate yourself, she says. Well, okay, I will, he says, but it won't have the same effect as when they assinated Presidents Lincoln and Kennedy. This time she doesn't laugh out loud. Anyway, he says, actually, what was it about your story, anyway, actually? It's about this girl who wakes up in the year 2000 after being asleep for 20 years, Anna says, and the catch is, in the year 2000, pretty much everything's exactly like now, except this. When the girl tries to read words... It's like they're all printed upside down. She wakes up and she goes to the kitchen and gets out a packet of cereal and it looks exactly the same as a cornflakes packet now, except she notices that the writing on it is upside down. She can still read it and everything, but it's a bit weird. She turns it on its head, but that doesn't work because the words are printed in the same order as they would be if they were printed the right way up. Then she tries to read the newspaper and she realises it's the same, the words are all printed upside down, and then she's in a panic and she thinks she's losing her brain and she goes to get her old copy of her favourite book off the shelf book she read 20 years ago like now and it's the go-between by lp hartley and she opens it and its words are all the right way up and everything and she breathes this big sigh of relief but then she goes out into town and the writing on the front of the bus is upside down and all the shop names are upside down and no one else thinks it's a big deal or anything and then she gets suspicious and she goes especially to the bookshop she always went to you know 20 years ago in 1980 and she takes a new copy of the same book the go-between down off the shelf and sure enough on the cover, the title is upside down, and on the back, the summary thing they write about the story is upside down, and she opens it, and every page is printed upside down. And then half a day passes, and by lunchtime, she's used to the words being the wrong way up. Her brain just processes it, and by the end of the day, by the end of the story, she isn't even noticing they're upside down anymore. She stops speaking. She's suddenly embarrassed at saying so much out loud and exhausted too. It's more than she said all in one go since she left home. That's good, the boy is saying. That's really subversive, subversive sleeping beauty. I mean, how would you wake her? Kissing her won't do it. It isn't a line. He isn't being flirtatious. He actually looks preoccupied. He's very witty and definitely clever. He's probably one of the ones on this trip who are going to Oxford or wherever it is they're all going. But he doesn't sound rich or like he's going to go to a posh school. Also, He has already made her really laugh. She wants to ask whether he knows anything about the people who shaved off the boy's half-moustache. He doesn't seem like he'd be the kind to do that sort of thing. He's dark-haired, big-nosed. He'd be good-looking if it wasn't for his nose. He, He looks the quiet type. Maybe he looks more the quiet type than he actually is. 
He looks a bit tired, this close-up. His hair is longish, not too long. He's wearing a blue vest top. He's quite broad-chested. His arms and shoulders come out of the vest top, gangly and pale, like he doesn't fit himself. But the way he moves just then to flick a little green fly or something off the leg of his jeans is both gentle and exact. She stops looking at him because he starts looking at her. What are you doing, he says then. She shrugs, nods at the timetable on the top of her tour folder, waiting for whatever it is we're supposed to be doing next on the list. She says, no, I mean... What are you doing with that, he says. He's pointing at her head, at her ear. While they've been talking, she has unbent the paper clip from the useful information sheets in the folder and without really thinking about it, has been poking its end into her ear piercing. Oh, she says, making an earring. Out of a paper clip, he says. I only brought one earring with me. I mean, from home, she says. I don't want the hole to close up. When people do that on TV and dramas, like unravel a hairpin or a paperclip, it's because they're going to unpick a lock or something, he says. But then you stuck it into your earlobe. That is so 1976. I'm so 20th century, she says. It's probably still really new wave to do that in France, he says. No, I mean, probably still really nouvelle vague. Hey, listen, if your second name was Key, she looks sideways at him, you'd be Anna Key in the UK, he says. <laughs> He's laughing at her now, then she is laughing too at herself. Wish I was in the UK right now, she says. Your earrings really mean that much to you? He says, wow, no, I like it here. I like places of disrupted history that have managed all the same to come out of things looking pretty good. I'm enjoying all the tourifications, but you, you'd rather be there than here. Anna nods. You're not having a good time, he says. Anna looks away from him, looks at the water. Well, he says, you could just go, just go home. Yeah, right, Anna says, well, I would have had my passport. I'd like to at least have the choice. Let's see it, he says. What, she says. Your passport, he says. They took them, Anna says. They took mine. Did they not take yours? Come on, he says. Here to help. Show me your passport and I'll help you across the border. He puts on a stern face, points at the French bread sticking out of her packed lunch bag, holds out his hand. You want this, she says. Passaporte, he says. I've eaten mine. You're being such a tube, she says, but she hands him the bread. Right, he says. Come on. He stands up. Where, Anna says. Fishing, he says. They spend the afternoon throwing bits of bread at the water and watching for the mouths of the fish to appear to open and close as if detached from any actual fish bodies at the surface. On the way back to Paris, when everybody crowds, scrumming for seats onto the bus, he catches the edge of her jacket in his hand. When she passes his table, he moves over into the empty seat next to him. She sits down. This is Anna Key, he tells the two other people sitting at the table. Anna Key in the UK and Anna Key when she's not in the UK too. This time on the bus, when she gets her book out of her bag, it isn't because she feels bad. Everybody talks around her all the way back to Paris like she belongs, like she's never not been there. She even joins in with a couple of the conversations. In her room in the hotel before supper, she sits on the bed and takes the list of prize winners' names out of the information folder. There is only one Miles. Miles Garth. Next to his name is the word reading. Reading. It is the place he's from. There was once, and there was only once once was all there was. She wonders if that was really his first line. She wishes she'd asked him how the rest of it went. She tells herself to remember to ask him the next time they speak. That evening, when she comes down to dinner in the hotel, some of the same people she sat next to on the bus ride back have kept her a seat. She makes friends with a girl who didn't seem shy, but she finds is quite shy, and who, it turns out, is from Newcastle. They both talk about nothing for a while, then nod at each other in the knowledge that they can now safely hang out with one another whenever they need to for the ten days left. Meanwhile, the boy, Miles, is across the other side of the hotel dining room, standing chatting at the staff table. She sees from this distance how it's as if there's a kind of agreeableness in the air around him. She watches how he and the people sitting near him at that table all laugh at something someone said. She bets herself it was him who said it, the funny thing. 
After dinner, she's waiting in the queue for the freaky, creaky old hotel lift with a dangerous metal door when out of nowhere he's beside her, leaning on her shoulder very lightly. I went between, his voice at her ear says. Eh? She says. I penetrated to the heart of the machine so as to appropriate the machine, he says. Eh? She says again. Eh is for ABBA, he says. B is for Banshees. C is for covert criminal activity. He holds something up. It's a passport. It's open at the photo page. The photo is of her. I penetrated to the heart of the forest, he says, sacrificed myself and brought back you. He hands her her own passport. He smiles. He nods just once. There you are, he says. Leave it there. That's long enough, eh? Anna, who won? Tay Albrecht. Hey. <laughs> Cheers for Tay Albrecht. Hey. That's lovely. Tay Albrecht, that's great. That's nice. What would you like to do now? Do you want to ask me some questions? or, or you, Yes, go, please. For this story, for, for the piece I just read you. <sighs> okay, rarely am I autobiographical in what I do, but I did actually win a place on the Barclays Bank Eurovision Tour 1980. <laughs> Not Eurovision, but it felt like Eurovision. Euro, Euro, Europe uh, Tour, um, 50 of us were taken round Europe uh, to different cities. Um, and this happened quite, quite a few years in succession, I think, that, that, that they took 50 people who had written something, which was either a piece of documentary or it was, or it was a story. In my case, I'd written a story. And they took us around all these cities. And when I was writing this novel, um, I wanted to look at the ways in which, uh, in our 20s and our 40s and our 60s and our 80s and when we were children, things strike us in the world. And I wanted also to look at the way that time shifts. And the, it was a kind of immediate metaphor in the idea of being a future writer, um, a writer of the future. And then if I think now of myself at, at, at 17, whatever I was, thinking, you know, about the year 2000, which was so far ahead, you know, that we just, it was unimaginable. And yet, of course, it's passed like that. And now it's 10 years past that. I mean, it's, just, it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's the perfect, it's the perfect kind of gem of metaphor. In Anna's case, she's not me, although she is Scottish and feels a bit ostracised and is shy. But, um, She's not me. She's ended up in her life um, working in a place called the Centre for Temporary Permanence, where she uh, has to pre-see the stories which asylum seekers give her onto one sheet of A4 paper, and that's the future. That's future writing, as it were, for her. So, in a way, it's a it's a it's a perfect handshake. I think from the politics of the 80s. When I was writing this chapter, I went back and listened to all the charts from the first six months of of, of 1980, and. That, that pop music is full of politics about surveillance and being spied on and someone looking at you. Uh, 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 uh. And it's ev- almost every British pop song is a kind of is a kind of is kind of throbbing with politics in a in a way that's you know that's well you know that that we that we in a way we've forgotten um, and um, and that was really interesting as well because I thought about how very politicised we thought we were with our fists up um, and Suana so in a way encapsulates the shift of time which brought, you know, 
us to this to this point, or my my particular generation in her. Although there's a, there's a chap in the next cha- chapter who's in his sixties, just coming up to his sixties. A chap in the a, a woman in the chapter after that who's in her eighties, and then a, a small child who's just coming up ten in the last chapter. So with any luck, um, although the others are not quite so autobiographical, I've got them right. I hope so anyway. Does that answer your question? So it's unusual for me to use something autobiographical as a as a as a kick point. It really is, but um, I think I think it's okay this time. The, the the other people on there are some other people on this tour. I found out years later, Mark Lawson was on this tour. Uh, who does who does front row? And you know, I don't. I, we didn't know each other on the tour. We everybody kind of knew their five friends, you know. And Mark Lawson, I actually years later, I looked at the list of people and I saw Mark Lawson's name was on it, and I thought, I wonder if it's the same one. I went through my photos, and in a photo I've got in the Venice Hotel, there's Mark Lawson. <laughs> He's got hair. <laughs> he really has. He's good and lovely. So, um, so, and, and a couple of I think the chap who's the um, film review at the, review at the Guardian. Uh, Peter, um, yes, yes, Peter Bradshaw is uh, uh, was also on there, but we didn't know each other. So, so you end up on a bus with fifty people for fourteen days, and you still don't know each other. Anyone else got a question? Yes, please. Okay, okay. The question is, in case you didn't hear it at the back or over here um, about the titles and um, uh, this very nice gentleman says he likes he think I take great care with titles which I, I think is, is uh, um, he wants to know whether what, to, to me to talk about the relation of the title uh, for me to the book for me it's everything the, the, the title will tell you absolutely everything and, you, and at any point if you cut through the book you should be able to be somewhere Co- kind of, kind of close to or coalescing around that title, um, and f- with this book in particular, I mean, um, I usually get the title before the book, and th- with this book, that is all I had, um, as well as an, a, a vague idea of something which went between times, very broad times, or um, eventually a, a picture of a man in a room who didn't know why he was in the room, how to get out, uh, what to do about it. Um, but the structure for the novel, because that's all I had, was absolutely kind of pinned on, if you, if you imagine the, the roof of St Pancras and there's the word there, there's but, there's for and there's the, and that was the roof of the whole novel and all I knew was that uh, in each of the chapters I would be spending a lot of time thinking about what each word meant um, there's such nothing words but, the the there's such nothing and there's such everything, they're everything everything we do is worked by the, these tiny little nuts and bolts of words, um, and I think that I, I'm, I'm, I think this is okay. This chapter now because the, I think it does work, but I think it works for the book I'm, I'm, in a way that not that it's unexpected, that, but that I didn't know if I'd be able to pull off. Which is that it implies something which is not said in it, so that immediately your your reader, uh, your person who picks up the book, uh, is having to do something, fill in, make an assumption, uh, be there. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yes. Spot on. The the word the words the, the words of of course in the in the cliche and it's a cliche there but for the grace of God goes whatever the the yes it was I mean obviously they were there but also their missingness is very important um, the fact that they're not there and the fact that we provide them and the, the interplay between all of those things you know with, with any luck. 
is is kind of, kind of at the heart of, of of the book, and they are massive words. Um, but we do we I mean do we even need them to know what they are? And that you know so there's so there's you know there's a there's a, there's always the question of how how uh, we are using language at the, at the basis of this. Also the the it was great fun writing the the chapter. The is such a fantastic word, and you start to think about the implications of not having the, and what it means to describe anything or to give anything definition, the definite article, to, to, to let anything be indefinite. You know, or, or, and it's, it's even more definite if you take the the out, it, peculiarly. It's even more definite. So there's a uh, fastest swimmer in country. <laughs> even more definite, you know, even more kudos to the fastest swimmer in country. So uh, uh, it was, I mean, it kept me sane having the, having the, the structure of the chapter and... Uh, and then I'm going to tell you a really weird, spooky thing that happened after I wrote this, which is that I was reading... I'm, I'm, I love Mansfield. I really love Catherine Mansfield's writing. And I was reading her letters uh, in November. I'd handed the novel in in August, and I came across on page 45 and one of the pages of her letters. There but for the blank go bogey and I. And I was like, oh, my God! Oh my God. <laughs> but then I thought what was most exciting about that was, of course, you don't need... You don't need anything other than those words. At any point with that phrase, that's working. That's working, and it's working all through history since uh, Bradford. Uh, I think it is John Bradford, who's the incendiary heretic, according to the church, who, who made up this phrase, who said this phrase as he looked out of the window of the jail and saw some other incendiary heretics being politically taken off to be burnt. There but for the grace of God go I. comes from Bradford's writing. Um, and uh, that in itself is a... You know, is a, is a source for it. Um, it's, a, it's political, and it's about how religions and how powers work against each other to to take you know their own power. So, and also, it, and also, there's a sense of smugness in there. But for the grace of God, I didn't happen to me. You know, great. So, there's, there's it's also with any luck addressing questions about who's secure and who isn't in in society and in and in life. You know. I wish I had recorded that or something. Someone had, had recorded. Have you recorded it? Oh, it's been recorded. Oh. <laughs> I actually feel almost articulate about it. It's, it's been a really hard book to be articulate about until now. It's, it, I haven't, it's been a, quite a, a mystery to me uh, to, to be able to, to say anything about it, actually. Thanks for asking me that one and for them recording it. <laughs> anything else? Please. Anything, anything at all. I'll tell you my age. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, so you must be. Uh, how far through are you, Kathy? Kathy um, says she hasn't finished it yet. Yeah. Okay. You're into the second chapter, are you? Okay. Okay. I'm not telling you. <laughs> Do I like the girl? Yeah. Oh, um, I love, I actually, weirdly for me, love, because it's not usually like this with a book. Usually you have quite a lot of trouble with characters, but I was saying to Laura when we met a couple of weeks ago, who has organised this event tonight, that I feel great affection for every single character in this book in a way that is a new experience for me, and I hope it happens again. It's been a, a delight to, to write with such affection. I love it. And it, was a, it was a good feeling rather than always kind of writing against the grain. Uh, Brooke is... The, the child Brooke, yeah, 
um, and she's really important. Um, I'm interested, a lot of critics really focus on Brooke, and I get a lot of stuff about you really are good at children. And I'm, 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 it's a bit like when they say to Jane Austen, when they said about Jane Austen that she was really good at writing very small on a very small piece of miniature. It's a funny thing to, to always, people always go to the child. Now, first of all, I wondered if it was patronising, but actually I think it's because we just always naturally go to the child. And that there's a, you know, a, co- a common denominator in all of us, although we've taken all our different ways and all our different lives across the earth, is the openness, the open-eyedness, the fears, the, just the kind of beginnings of metaphysics in childhood. Um, and I think it might just be a really common denominator. And I think with with Brooke, uh, um, she's a really uncommon common denominator. She's really special, and her specialness is part of the import, actually, I think, of this novel. Yeah, it is, it's very, very, very precious in, to, to protect the child in this novel, I think, as you'll, with any luck, see. Can I say anything about rhythm in my writing? Yes. Um, I hope it's there. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I hope so. I think I think uh, all writing and all voice is all about rhythm. I don't think there's anything else, pretty much. I think we could understand just from beating out a rhythm what was happening. Um, and so, if you don't have that in what you're working on, then it's you know you, it's not going to work. It's not going to be alive. Um, and the fall of a sentence is the most important rhythm of all. Um, and it's how we make. We meet our own rhythms because our bodies are full of rhythm. Um, so it's, it's life. It's really important. So I, 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 uh, I think I'm lucky to be Scottish um, and to have inherited a, a, a very rhythmic tradition um, from a kind of highland and lowland tradition, both at once. I've been very lucky with that. English is, English is an interestingly arrhythmic structure uh, as a language in its syntax. And I think... Being Scottish, I can get away with an awful lot, to be honest. <laughs> I do, and I think, I think, I think, I think it's it's a, a, we live in a world where the lyric, the, the lyrical, lyricism is really not usually allowed in prose. There are very few novelists who can get away with it, and one of them is Sebastian Barry. Um, it seems to me that Barry and Irish writers um, in general, Banville. Um, particularly Barry, because Barry takes immense risks with lyricism, with music, with rhythm. Um, you know, they, they, they give us something which almost nobody else is... It's almost a kind of courage to, get, to give that to readers at the moment when readers would be suspicious of something quite so rich. Um, but, I mean, thank God for, for Barry. Uh, he, he, he seems to me to pick up everything that's Joyce in and everything also that's in a, a writer that I love from the 1930s called Lewis Grassic Gibbon who's a Scottish writer who was born in Aberdeenshire and who does anyone does anyone here know Grassic Gibbon's work okay Lewis Grassic Gibbon a Scots queer it's a it's an extraordinary again polit- deeply political socialist work um, so highly lyrical it's almost untakeable and embarrassing <laughs> and so beautifully held as he forces that lyricism through the changes in in uh, to, to, to a peasant economy into industrialism, uh, and it, like watching those things come up against each other is like it's like watching two two massive, cre- you know, m- kind of creations argue, and that is that was the, in a way the argument of the twentieth century. Lewis Grassic Gibbon. Um, if, if I'm rhythmic, I'm lucky to, to have him, uh, you know, in, in my bones actually. Mm. Oh, go, go. oh, you're a Scot. <laughs> you didn't say you'd read Grassic Gibbon. Have you read Grassic Gibbon? No, I 
You haven't? Oh no, what happened to you in high school? We all had to read Greta Given. When I write, do I read aloud what I've written, or is it just inside my head? It is actually, I don't read it aloud. I know, I do know people who do read it aloud, and they make a point of reading it aloud, but um, but I don't. Um, I think it's because I think it's because I really love reading, so therefore I'm always aware of it, just being whether it's rhythmic or not. As soon as you look at a sentence, it, you can you can feel the fall of it if you read. I mean, I do nothing but read. I'm lucky. My life is blessed really with reading so but uh, I do know an awful, I mean I think it's very very important that it sounds right everything's about sound really okay and my identity as a Scottish writer has that changed throughout my career uh, do I think of myself as a British writer or a Scottish writer I really try not to think of myself as a writer at all of, of any kind uh, I'm, I'm, I'm scared to in case if I think of myself as a writer I will stop being able to write um, there is something uh, I'm really uneasy about even sitting in front of you all tonight, even though you're really lovely, and this is the nicest reading I've done for a long time. Um, I, I don't. I, I feel really uneasy about the writer figure being be, being between either herself or the book she's writing, and or the reader in the book. Either way, and so the part of the the the, the, the way that I do it is to absent, if I can as much as you can, because of course you can't, of course everything's always with you all the time, but it's as much as possible to absent myself from the process so that it doesn't get in the way of what I'm writing, um, which is really hard if you live in an open-plan house where you can hear every creak and uh, you can actually hear a cat walk through like this so you're never quite free of yourself, um, never mind all the other things that make us not free of ourselves. But it seems to me that to, to get away from anything that, that something that would become ventriloquism unless we... And let you know, it would it would be wooden in, in the hands. Yeah, I, I try not to think of myself as a writer at all. That said, I'm really Scottish, actually, and it always will be. It's really hard not to be Scottish, but I'm also Catholic and elapsed Catholic, and 48, and my size of feet is five, and <laughs> um, and it goes the list of what I am. See, it would just be boring as well. That'd be the other thing. You've got to get rid of the list of what you are to be able to to listen. Okay. Okay. Do I generally think it's not okay for a writer to be autobiographical? Uh, no, uh, um, I don't think that. Um, I think every writer does what, it, what they do, um, and that if you write autobiographically, there's no way it's going to be any worse or better. It's just going to be good writing if it's good writing. Um, although I have a feeling that autobiography is just as fictional as anything else. Um, I don't write autobiographically because nothing much interesting has happened to me. I think if I had been a lion tamer or I had, you know, I knew how to tightrope walk, then it would be really fascinating to write about that. But and the things I have done, which are pieces which which are about things that have happened in, in my life, you know, I'm quite happy to have done. But I don't think it feeds my fiction. I don't think anything in my life really, other than good luck, the good luck of still being alive and you know having all my limbs and everything, feeds my fiction. Um, yeah, and also, like I say, the, the, the process for me of writing fiction is of, of leaving the self behind, therefore trying to back... It was hard with this book, because um, in, in the middle of it, my dad died. And um, what I found out was that writing is not at all autobiographical, and that even in times when your life just goes completely haywire bullshit madness, which is what happens around a death, I think, generally... It carries on, whatever it is, below the surface, whatever it is, if you keep working, if you have the trust in it, it keeps going, carry on, carries on, it produces itself. At the end, the book came through the post ten days ago, 
finished copy and I was like, did, did I really? How did that happen? Because this, I don't really remember. So, I mean, that's my answer. If I had more of an autobiography, then that would be interesting, but, you know, shrugs. Yes, you remind as many as you like. Am I a researcher? No, absolutely not. Completely the opposite of research. I'm really rubbish at research. Um, I would be terrible at a historic novel. I would just get everything wrong, really wrong. The, the, the buses would be the wrong colour and the ladies' bustles would be in the wrong shape and they'd be made of the wrong thing. I'd be rubbish. I would just get it wrong. That's not research. <laughs> Going back and listening to the 80s music, is that research? No, that's not research. That's this kind of mood, it's kind of atmosphere. It was kind of, it's more of, it's more of a, an, a feel of the time. But uh, a, no, I'm, I, I, was, I was once an academic, and I left being an academic because I was a very, very bad academic, got it wrong. It was very not pedantic enough, in, meaning pedantic in the right way, meaning could not, did not take the right steps. You know? So, um, no. <laughs> Are we done? Okay. Final question from Tracy. Okay, no, that's true, actually. Um, the other thing I listened... I did, well, if you could call research, um, is I listened non-stop for about six months to the Irving Berlin songbook, um, Ella Fitzgerald's version, and, um, and also read all of his lyrics. He's fantastic. Berlin is a master of rhyme. I had such a good time with with him. It doesn't uh, research sound is the wrong word for it. It's like it's it's like kind of ex- excitement and freedom uh, to, to come across to, to to actually spend time with with this this material. Anyway, because one of the characters, uh, his mother loves uh, song. She loves nineteenth, uh, uh, well, twentieth century, really mid twentieth century show tunes. So um, I had a really lovely time, which opened up into an understanding of why we need things to rhyme and also what we use rhyme for and why we use wordplay and how completion and sensuality and love and lightness in the heaviest of situations can be carried by a rhyme um, or by a twist, a t- a twist of, of, of tune. Um, so that was, uh, of course, a kind, a kind of research, but it still didn't feel like research. This, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a book. It is a book about lightness in impossibly heavy situations, and so to, to go to Irving Berlin was, was I think, a, a, was I think a, a gift really. Um, and I, I don't want to say anything more than that in case, in case no one's got to that part of the book. Um, but um, what a joy uh, to, to rhyme Irving Berlin with. Uh, not Irving Berlin, I'm, um, uh, I'm talking about the Gershwins, sorry, sorry, not Irving Berlin, but Gershwin who rhymed Irving Berlin with pounding on tin, um, <laughs> salmon with backgammon, um, you know, uh, glorious, glorious. Anyway, that do it. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.